Gather round cause we're here at Dreamland with none other than Cole Schaefer himself. We're talking about the stuff that stirs your soul and keeps you up late at night. At Dreamland, we sit down with Grammy-winning producers, James Beard award-winning chefs and New York Times best-selling authors as they divulge the processes they've used to turn their dreams into the kind of creative work that's shaping culture as we know it. Buckle up because this is no ordinary show. There will be fire, spilt milk, and more than a few surprises as we discover what it means to be creative at Dreamland. Yells action. <laughs> action. <laughs> you can if you want to. You can kick it off for us. You're the director now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I also got some katanas up there to. I saw that. Yeah. Those were my grandmother's. No way. Yep. Those were my grandma. A, a lot of this stuff was, man. Uh, she passed away when I was 18. Uh, immigrated from japan and and I, I have pretty much all their stuff around here amazing yeah so speaking of japan tell me about japanese vinyl bars well uh i i'm very obsessed with japan and and the culture and i really um i'm drawn to the discipline and respect and the collective as a community, the, the way just the whole community works there together. One of the most fascinating things is trying to find a trash can on the streets in Tokyo. They don't exist. They don't. It's, it's absolutely fascinating. And if you look throughout history, any cool thing, once it gets to Japan, it just becomes perfected. Pizza. Uh, the best pizza you'll ever eat in your whole life is in Japan. Um, I promise you. <laughs> I've eaten pizza all over the world. And um, back in the 50s, there was this concept that started uh, around people being obsessed with jazz. And in the you know 50s and 60s, wow. And it was, imagine, just try to imagine being there during that time when that music that had never been heard before is just coming out and... Like you're just dying for the next Miles Davis release, um, and so living in Japan in the fifties and sixties was you know those those records as soon as they came out they weren't that accessible, um, and they love hi-fi audio, um, in just in general, in Japan everywhere you go it's, the sound is just it's it's always it's it's oftentimes overlooked here like when you go to a restaurant or whatever, um, but anyway. Uh, what happened was these little tea parlors started popping up and they would set up almost like a, like a home stereo looking thing with Macintosh amps and like really big, nice studio monitors, you know, whatever the latest hi-fi stuff was. Um, and they would just play the, the latest jazz albums from start to finish. And so if you couldn't afford Macintosh amps and Tannoy speakers or you didn't have a friend in New York who could get you an album... You could, for the price of a cup of tea or coffee, you could go and sit and listen to these albums and experience them with proper audio. Um, and then that slowly morphed into cocktails, of course, um, thankfully. 
And I've been going to these since the first trip to Japan over the last decade. And I just love the concept of having a place where you can just go and um, hang out in a place full of people who are there to really enjoy music the way it's supposed to be enjoyed and the way it's recorded to be enjoyed. Um, and I was just there back in mid-May, and I went to one of my favorite spots. It's called Bar Track. And um, I just was enjoying myself. But then all of a sudden, it, it was almost like when the acid kicks in or the first time you smoked pot or something where like everything opens up all of a sudden and it's like three-dimensional. That happened to me. I was sitting there. I was like, whoa, I thought somebody had like dosed me. I could hear the, the drums behind me in the back and I could hear the guitar over here and the bass over here. And I was like, this is the most amazing song. What is this? And I looked and it was cake. <laughs> I... It was a song that I'd heard a million times and probably would have passed over on the radio, mm -hmm. but by chance I sat in the perfect spot for those two speakers, the sweet spot, which is now what I chase everywhere in every room I go to. Because um, once you hit it, it's, it's, it's transcendental. You just, it's, you go somewhere else. And um, I couldn't stop thinking about it. I, it, it obsessed me in a way that... Um, food normally does, food experiences. And um, within two weeks, I had already replicated the sound system from that bar in Japan at my house. <laughs> because Craigslist here is amazing because there's studios being bought and sold all the time and people are just ripping stuff out. So I ended up with these speakers that are, I mean, I hope I, hope I get buried with them. Um, they're these big, huge Tannoy speakers, which is what all those bars use over there. You know, they're, they're, they're created for recording music and playing back music that's been recorded to be, you know, mixed and mastered and, and all those things. Um, but I found these, uh, online, they were just in someone's garage. Turns out they were speakers that are one of a kind prototypes that were, um, made for the recording of the Highwayman album. And then used for a bunch of other Waylon albums, Willie albums. Wow. Um, with this uh, very, very cool guy named Chips Moman, who was, you know, in, in Memphis. Um, he did the Elvis Comeback Tour, and he did all that stuff. Um, so these speakers are like, you know, I hope Willie Nelson has rolled a joint on those speakers. <laughs> I bet he has. <laughs> I bet he has. Um, yeah, I ask because... When Case and I went to Japan for three weeks, I hit you up about some spots we should go to, and you connected me with Sinji, and he just showed us around Tokyo, and it was incredible, and we actually went to Bar Track. Oh, you did? Went to Bar Track. Okay, so it, I have that sound system at the Continental. As I, we speak, I'm going yeah. there right after this to spin a pile of records. I, I can't believe that. <laughs> I genuinely can't. It was, it's Bar Track, you, yeah. You described it perfectly. We, we walk in... It there's vinyls on covering every inch of the wall from floor to ceiling. There's like three three spin tables in there so that uh, people the the person who was I guess handling the ox would literally put a vinyl on, drop the needle, and kind of cue up the next vinyl. And I mean it was just and you'd sip you'd, you'd sip Japanese whiskey. It was it was 
an incredible experience. We're doing that tonight with fried chicken, caviar, and champagne, and um, hollandaise. Oh, man. <laughs> it's going to oh, be man. so fun. That's going to be special. He also, you said that the Japanese will perfect everything, which I completely agree with. But while we were over there, we went to this, and I don't know if you've been, but it's this three-story pizza shop that's completely Beatles themed. Serinkin. <laughs> yeah, man, from Florida. So, so Serinkin is, it is like the gates of heaven. It is, it is the best pizza ever in the whole universe that's ever existed. And yeah, it's all a Beatles themed thing. And that he is, um, you know, he's obviously obsessed with the Beatles, but just music. He's a drummer. And so the last time I was there, I was with Shinji. And I happened to be there when he was there, and we were this close to, um, next time you're there, go into the basement. Say you got to go to the bathroom, go all the way down, and you open this door, and it's just a huge recording studio full of insane drums and guitars, and it's wild. He wanted to jam, and I could have jammed with the Serenkin. We pizza guy. That we so completely amazing. missed that. We he he didn't he didn't show us that. Uh, <laughs> he's he's a cool cat though, Shinji. It didn't he isn't he starting a or he might have started a speakeasy in New York. Or? He has one, yeah. It's yeah. called Shinji's. Oh, is it really? Yeah. Okay. Have you been? Oh yeah, it's amazing. Is it cool? It's so cool. You gotta go. It's yeah. tiny, and it's very uh, avant garde, modern molecular gastronomy kind of stuff. That's that's dope. Yeah, really fun. Which, speaking of bars, you know, I've, I've been to Audrey's a few times, and something I love about the tasting menu upstairs is that there's no menu. You just literally, they show you a tray, and there's various fruits or vegetables on there, and you just kind of pick one. What's What was the, what was the thinking behind that? Yeah, that... Um that really ties into how we just cook in general and how we think in general. Um, our bar program, we have a new person leading it now. Um, Eric is, he's one of the most talented people I've, I've, I've worked with as far as like being creative, new ideas. Um, but really the ideas and the way we think about food and drink and just life in general is we have this this very pretty strict creative process that I've been working on and has helped me for many years maybe 10-15 years I've been using the system um, for a lot of the choices we make but also just something as simple as creating a, a soup or uh, you know um, a cocktail and um, and this was inspired by the band you you mentioned earlier Kind of. It all ties in together. Okay. I'm curious. You <laughs> yeah, it all ties in together. Um, I'll always find a way to weave music into um, the restaurant somehow. Um, I actually, when I, when I graduated high school, I said, I'm either going to go down this road and be a chef or go down this road and play music. And I moved to Athens, Georgia to play music. I chose it over food. Really? Yeah. How, how long did you do that for? About six months. Six months. <laughs> <laughs> I realized real fast being in Athens, Georgia, that I had no business being on a stage playing any instrument in front of anyone. Okay. <laughs> Much less a life of it. Um, but now what's cool is it's kind of come around full circle, and music is a huge part of my life now. Because, I mean, you, you also collaborated on an album 
somewhat recently, right? Yeah. So I, I play um, guitar uh, and love it so much. I've been collecting guitars since I was a little kid. Yeah. Um, it's so, so fun. Um, and one of the main reasons I moved from Charleston to Nashville is because once I came here to open Husk in 2013, the only way I can describe it is I felt more fulfilled here because of the music presence. Mm-hmm. I felt more whole. Mm-hmm. And I realized that how important music was f- for the hole that needs to be filled in my soul. Um, and there's plenty here. It's great. It's overflowing now. Yeah. Um, it, it's amazing. Um, but the creative process. Uh, I developed this a long time ago because I, um, I need discipline. I need structure. I need you know foundational things to happen so that then I can not worry and and be creative, and, and I, I have to have structure in place in order to be creative, in other words, um, or else I'm, I'm trying, I just can't. The, the creative process to me has to be, like, oh, it has to be relaxed. It has to, you just have to let it fall out of the sky. But creating a plate of food involves a lot more thing, a lot more than just an idea. Um, and so in order to, to create space to think and create, we created this really cool system that we call the Pi Theory, P-I-E. And um, we, we, it's kind of like slang that we use. It's like that doesn't fit the Pi Theory. Because the way the Pi Theory works is it takes everything into account, not just creativity, but it also creates a lot of space for creativity, but it's not the driving or, or determining factor, creativity. So it starts with products, ideas, then execution. So PIE, P-I-E. So the products, that's the most important thing to me. Um, so we spend 80% of our time finding the products, finding the apple that ends up at the bar by working with uh, various people who are obsessed with saving old heirloom varietals of apples. So just starting with, a, with really, really, really good ingredients. Ingredients that then have to pass a lot of tests. They have to be farmed properly. They have to be um, harvested properly. They have to be stored properly. Um, We have a lot of protocol for determining how food gets to us and and when it gets to us and and from where. And so what happens is, is it creates this concentration on the products because the idea is we, we set up an amount of time and a deadline and say, okay, on October 12th, we'll need the product list for the fall menu. And then uh, we walk in, we have, we have a room dedicated to just this process. Um, and uh, it's, it's floor-to-ceiling books. It's every book I own is there um, for everyone to have access to. And there's this big, huge, beautiful table an enormous um, smart screen, and we just sit in there, and 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 it's, you know it's a it's a, a sanctuary, it's a fortress of solitude kind of thing. We know like when we're in there, we're 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 really thinking about um, the, the creative process, and and only that. Um, and once the products have gone through all that to get on the list, then the rule is they have to be used. Um, so. What happens is I end up sitting in front of a, a list of ingredients. And um, we have uh, a person that runs our research and development 
and fermentation lab who has a chemistry degree and a culinary degree. He's in the meeting. We have one person on our team who only does R&D. That's it. And then my right hand, my, my um, chef de cuisine, is in the meeting as well. So it's, it's us sitting at a table looking at the ingredients. So we can now move on to the eye, the ideas, or the creativity. Um, and I would just go nuts if I didn't have even more discipline in place for this part of the process. And so my general thinking is, and therefore my rule that I try to instill in people is, we can't, if we, we want new ideas. We want to create something new over and over and over again. That's what stimulates me. That's what intrigues me. That's what keeps me going. Um, so if we have an idea, we have to make sure we haven't done it yet and that someone else hasn't done it to be original. It's almost like you pass over those two stepping stones and then all of a sudden you're standing on the other one. It's like, oh, I see those behind me. What's, what's, what's going to happen yeah. here? Here be monsters. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes it doesn't work and we don't come up with anything. Most of the time, maybe even half the time, we don't come up with anything new. And we'll go back to using something that we've seen or something that we've done when we determine we need to do that. And that's part of the next step, the execution. Um, so what we do is um, I keep um, a notebook at all times uh, and a pen and I write every thought down or else I completely will forget it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I will, it will just disappear and just like a balloon floating away into the universe. Um, so I'll fill up a notebook and then I'll sit down with a, a thing of post-it notes and I'll pull out, like harvest the ideas that I want to see come to life. And then there's a big, huge bulletin board in that room and they're all up there. And they stay up there until they come to life. And then when they come to life, they get tossed in the trash. Um, and so that board is just constantly circulating. So when it comes to the, the cre- creativity for me, I've already done like that thinking. And I've got ba- a backlog of ideas that I want to put into place, no matter if it's squash or tomatoes. Sure. And so while the other people are throwing ideas around, I'm just standing in front of those post-it notes and trying to bring these random thoughts into, into the universe and see if they, they work. Then we, we, you know, we get all of the, all the things crossed off the list. So we've created this menu. That's just the best products we can find. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't really matter what we do to them at that point. They're going to be amazing. Um, and, and we've created a new perspective or a new idea or a new technique, um, or something new to us. But then the hard part is, the editing. Um, and we have a phrase that we live and die by. And that is, um, is the suffering worth the contribution? Sometimes it is. Most of the time it's not. So sometimes it is worth tornaying the carrots. You know, most of the time it's, it's, it's not because most people don't even know what a tornay is, much less it takes all day. Um, you know, and so we ask those questions like, are we tornaying it for us or for them? And so we, we look at things that way. And if, and if we're doing it and if the, if it's a bigger contribution, then we'll do the extra work. But what we're trying to do as a team and kind of the experiment that I'm doing is I'm 45 and I'm looking at the back end of things with so much excitement 
um, just giddy about it. Yeah. Um, and you know, I want to, um, I want to start making choices based on, will I still be doing this in 20 years? And that's why I built Audrey the way that I built it, Audrey in June. You know, that's why that place is so gigantic and so intricate is because I'm going to be in there working for the rest of my life. And um, what we're trying to do is create the space with all the tools you could ever imagine and then figure out how far can we push you know how how far can we pursue excellence but remain happy and healthy without burning out but remain happy and healthy mm-hmm. so if anything messes with our health or happiness we got to reevaluate um but that gets really tricky because you start making choices for your convenience not the guests and, and there's this balance that has to happen and and we don't have it figured out i don't care if we ever figure it out what i care about is one foot in front of the other small little improvements every day, Kaizen theory. And, and that's just what I'll do. Every day I'll wake up and do my best with these good intentions in mind, and I'm going to make a million mistakes, and I can't wait for them to happen because that's growth. That's, that's, that's how you become efficient, <laughs> wisdom. We interrupt this broadcast to bring to you a message from one of our lovely patrons here at Dreamland. One of my favorite writers of all time is Hunter S. Thompson. He was played by Johnny Depp in the book-turned-film Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Uh, The film got a lot of people interested in psychedelics. It also freaked a lot of people out, too. Take the opening line. Suddenly, there was a terrible roar all around us, and the sky was full of what looked like huge bats. Psychedelics, when abused, can be this scary trip. They can be a sky full of bats. But when taken in sub-hallucinogenic doses, they can enhance your creativity. Schedule 35 is one of the most trusted psilocybin brands among creatives in North America. Now they got micro doses, which is what I like to take when I'm feeling like I'm in a creative rut. If you're into seeing bats, you can use a super dose. Also have the lover's dose if you're feeling frisky. If you say fuck the doses and you just want chocolate, They also got psilocybin chocolate. Today, Schedule 35 is offering Dreamland listeners, that's you, 15% off your first order with discount code DREAMLAND at checkout. If you want to claim that, just head over to schedule35.co and use discount code DREAMLAND at checkout. Let's get back to the show. Something creatives really struggle with, and I'm sure chefs do too, is how do you decide between when you when you should make something for you and when you should make something for the customer or the client uh scorsese has an interesting line you know one for them one for me and that's kind of how he approached making films early on in his career he'd make one film that he wanted to make then he'd make one film for what pop culture wanted him to make and that's how he would like fund the next film and the next film how how do you think about that for me it's about trust and um, I'll do whatever it takes to gain your trust so that I can show you what I think is really, really cool that you may not have thought was cool just at first glance. Because, um, you know, I want, I want to live in a world of radical ideas and um, constant evolution and, 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 and creativity. Um, but not everybody wants that. And, and so 
I think what happens is for me, it's been like, okay, first half of your life, lay the foundation, gain the trust, earn the trust by putting things in front of them that they want, but doing it your way um, and making sure that you're not just doing something that anybody else can do, mm-hmm. doing it with your voice. Um, and then once you gain their trust, then you can do anything you want. Mm-hmm. You can turn your fine dining restaurant into a Japanese vinyl listening bar if you want to. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, and, and I admire that about you and that it, it, it does seem like you, your, your cooking and your approach to food makes people take a closer look at something maybe they don't always, uh, maybe that they aren't giving the attention that it deserves. Uh, and one, one example is, uh, my, my grandfather, so he grew up in Francisco, Indiana and he grew up dirt poor and they would forage for food. And, and his neighbor had this huge tree that would spit out hickory nuts. And so he'd go up there with a big burlap bag and he'd fill that, that bag with hickory nuts, drag it home They'd lay them out and dry them, uh, and then after that, he his his dad was a blacksmith, and he had a big like vice grip in there, and so he'd stick a hickory nut in there, turn the vice grip, crack it, take out the nut, uh, and the next time I heard about hickory nuts was eating at your restaurant, and uh, I believe it was uh, like a hickory nut oil. Yeah, yeah. But I, it was the most delicious thing I've ever had. That opens up this conversation that um, you know I get that I'll be I'll be having this conversation for the rest of my life, and that is what hidden traditions are in the mountains where I grew up in Appalachia. Um, traditions that, when I say traditions, think ketchup, think uh, soy sauce, mm-hmm. think something that was made from a raw product. Um, that was so good, it sticks around and it's everywhere. Forever. I use balsamic vinegar as the example. I've been to the town where balsamic vinegar started and where a lot of it's made. It's just a tiny little town. One day they decided they were going to be the badasses of balsamic vinegar. (laughs) And they are. And um, they were 500 years old as a culture and as a town before that even happened. How old are we as a, as a culture and as a, as a country? You know, we don't know anything, mm-hmm. uh, which is, which is kind of cool. Uh, that means that there's a lot of undiscovered cool stuff out there, and I'll spend the rest of my life trying to find it. And um, to be able to explore the woods that I grew up in and get back to those smells of sassafras and, like, all that wacky stuff that's in those mountains, we're now finding truffles there. Um, is anything, we're on the same... Um, so longitude or latitude goes this way uh, as not Japan. The to ask. Yeah. 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 Um, a- anyway, so a lot of like shiso grows wild here. It's pretty fascinating, um, which is very cool because I have spent the last three years working on this retail food product line called South that will launch um, next month in Whole Foods. And the idea That's is exciting. how can I, and this is like what I've been working towards this whole time. It's like, I, if you've tasted the difference between an heirloom tomato and a plasticky looking tomato, that, that story exists in everything we eat. 
there's a better version of it out there. A way better version of it out there. And that's what happened to me back in 2007 or so when I got bit with the, the seed saving bug. I, I wanted to, it was like I was like a, a preacher or something. It was like evangelical. <laughs> yeah. Taste this corn, you idiots. It's so much better. And um, my, my goal was get it into rest, you know, starting with, let's just use Jimmy Red as the example, Jimmy Red corn. A varietal of corn was my first seed saving project. Starting as a small handful of seeds, it takes a long time, and maybe that's all there is in existence. It takes a long time to get that that up to a place to where even I can serve it at Audrey. That could probably take three years if, if we start with a handful of seeds, if all the crops don't fail. Um, and then you figure out each, and that's the thing about heirloom crops, is they don't like to be grown in large um in, in large fields and large quantities, they just won't. Um, and so when we get enough of, when we've gotten to, you know, like year seven or eight of something, I, my goal has been to get them on the shelves of the grocery store so that when you're rolling through the corn chips, you, you choose the one that you haven't seen before that says something about heirloom corn and you eat it and you say, I can't believe I've been eating those other tasteless things. And that's now happening. We we um, we we have two. We have I've created this like cornbread chip. So all the chips on the market, corn chips, are nixtamalized. So they go through a calcium bath, uh, a lye basically. That's how you make tortillas and masa and all those things. Um, what I wanted to do was figure out a way to capture the aroma when you rip off the crust of a piece of cornbread straight out of the skillet. Mm -hmm. That aroma only happens, you know, once. And so if you nixtamalize your cooking and all that aroma goes away and you lose those flavor compounds and aroma compounds that we fight so hard to get in, you know, into this particular seed. And, um, and they're amazing. So we figured out this way to make corn chips without nixtamalizing the corn. Um, the guy that I worked on it with was at Frito-Lay for like 40 years. And it was like, a, this definitely has never happened. This doesn't exist. This is so cool. And you eat it. It's like, whoa, it tastes like the crust of cornbread. Wow. I, I can't wait to try that. <laughs> um, 16 pallets arrive tomorrow um, if, you, if you're around. Um, I'm going I'm to hit, <laughs> hit you up about that. Oh my. And so all those are going to be in Whole Foods? Uh, uh, all of the southern ones, like 48 or 50 of the southern ones. That's exciting. Congratulations. It's so wild. It doesn't even seem real. I'm not going to get excited until they're there. Until it's there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think that, yeah, I, I get that. And so, but then the hick, hickory nut, you, you do some interesting stuff with that. Um, I was listening to another interview you did, and it was, uh, you mentioned sap-based hickory nut syrup, which sounded incredible a little bit. One of the coolest things, one of the coolest discoveries of the last 10 years for me, it's been this, this hickory um, syrup. And it's an old tradition uh, where there's this particular uh, hickory tree called shagbark, mm -hmm. and it naturally exfoliates. And um, I don't know how yet. I'll figure it out. But it has the same aroma compounds and flavor compounds that something that is smoked has. When I first tasted it, I thought it was smoked maple syrup. Wow. It's not. It's just those flavors and aromas are in there. Going back to this idea that there are all these undiscovered, insane traditions, it's so much better than maple syrup <laughs> um, that are un undiscovered. 
And so what we do, I built a pretty wild research and development kitchen uh, at Audrey and filled it with the, some pretty insane equipment, a lot of stuff used in the cannabis industry now because cannabis is an herb. So what, you, what they can do with cannabis, we can do with basil mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, so we have this room full of equipment that, you know, was only most restaurants don't have. And what we do is we'll take an ingredient like hickory and then we'll obsess over it. And we'll try to figure out how we call it unlocking flavors. There's certain flavors that only get unlocked certain ways through cooking or fermentation or um, acidulation and all these different things. And so what we're hoping to do is just every year, you know, we kind of have a cycle of what the indigenous products are, but every year we just want to keep squeezing and unlocking doors and finding new ways to um, concentrate and extract the flavors of this area, this the area of the world, um, so that we can create and get to the, the mountaintop, which is serving the most minimalistic food in appearance that you could possibly ever serve, but blow someone's head off with flavor. And we have it on the menu now at Audrey. We're finally there. It's a, it's a, it's a tomato. It's a varietal of tomato that I grew up with. That was my grandmother's, blah, blah, blah. But what we do is we coat it in this concentrate that we make in the lab from uh, those tomatoes. And like, people stop me on the street and they're like, what did you do to the tomato? Yeah, because <laughs> you just look stunned. at it and it's a tomato, but you eat it and you can't stop thinking about it. So that's where we're trying to get. It's like, how can we show the most respect to these products possible? Uh, which is a very Japanese way of thinking. Yeah, yeah, it is, and and I think that that's that's what I was getting at when I when I just said I I really do feel like that. Um, if I were to en- encapsulate what you do creatively, a lot of it is just looking twice at things, you know, and, and one, one example, uh, one example I was, was hearing about how your mother would, uh, you, you all would be like driving home from practice and you would be driving on the highway and you'd see this, this patch of this, uh, specific weed. (laughs) And I was like, when I heard that, I thought, okay, he's, he's fucking with us. Um, that's not true. And I Googled it and, uh, I Googled there it. There it is. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, man. I Googled it and I was like, you know what? I'm going to go find this. And I did. I, I went out and found it and I couldn't, I, I, I genuinely could not believe that that stuff so was. So now out. your homework is Polk Salad Annie by Tony Joe White. Okay. On repeat for a couple days. Um, and that was, it, um, that was my, that was my mom's um, CB name to the truckers. Okay. Poke salad, Annie. Because <laughs> <laughs> you love this so much. Yeah, pokeweed is this wild plant. Literally, it's wild. Um, <laughs> and it's an herb, actually. It's, yeah. There's no way to describe it. It's like trying to describe the way a carrot tastes to somebody who's never had a carrot. It's impossible. And um, I was, my last trip to Japan, I saw some growing out of the sidewalk in Tokyo. This stuff is... Which goes back to us being on the same. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, wow. And this has so much history in the South. I mean, when I was a kid, I was taught that this um, is what the Cherokee would use for war paint. And so we would like paint our whole faces with it. 
That's and, incredible. Like, go to school with like red hands. That is badass. And this makes amazing lemonade. Really? Okay, I'm gonna. I, I have a whole. If you drink too much, lemonade. though, you will get diarrhea. Okay. All right. And I'll have to turn the plane around. <laughs> <laughs> Um, <laughs> he said it was okay. <laughs> uh, which, you know, I mean, speaking of, of, of your mother and, you know, where you grew up, I was also doing some research and a stone's throw from where you were born and raised was a super famous writer by the name of Napoleon Hill, yes. who wrote Think and Grow Rich. So he's from Pound, Virginia. That's where I'm from, which the population is like 900 and something. And I was going to ask you, you know, what what is it about that part of the world that produces such highly motivated people try and envision him sitting in pound virginia with you know writing that book and if you go back and watch coal miner's daughter that's what it looked like at that time when he was there like that's where they filmed that yeah like it's 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 unbelievably inspiring Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and you know your your father did he drive coal trucks Yes, so coal was everything. Coal was everything. And um, man, it was everything for a long time. And we, I, I'm like the first male in my family to not be in the coal business for like multiple generations. It's crazy. Um, I have Brock Trucking Company tattooed on my chest and a coal truck right here. Mm-hmm. Um, so I grew up around it's cool. um, a whole flock of coal trucks, um, these old like old uh, late 70s, early 80s, really cool coal trucks. And all the drivers looked like Hank Williams Jr., acted like Hank Williams Jr. <laughs> they thought they were Hank Williams Jr. and Leonard Skinner. And it was amazing. It was so cool to, to hang, to, to, to grow up around um, that, that region and see, see that culture. It's, it was really, really cool. A lot of amazing music came out of that area. Yeah. Was your, was your dad a foodie? Uh, he was not but um he he pretty much only ate steaks okay. <laughs> all the time breakfast lunch and dinner it seemed like but when i think of like food memories about my dad it's 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 steak with steak sauce steak with steak like sauce. a1 or heinz 57 or something yeah, yeah. Which, which i love i do too so i mean i i i get it um something i'm always interested by is is creatives and artists and um, chefs who are born out of um, born from a place where there is kind of a hard hat mentality to work, and I feel like that's certainly been something that you've embodied throughout your career. I remember watching uh, your uh, episode on Chef's Table, which I've probably seen six or seven times. I absolutely love it. But when you got your first chef's job uh, at was it the the Hermitage Hotel? Hotel here, yes. Yeah, you had a kind of a big blow up, uh, and you basically just said, "I'm I'm not taking a single day off until we get a good review." Has that like mentality always been a part of how you've approached your work? It goes back to growing up where I grew up and being wired the way you get wired, depending on where you grow up. And your early wiring, your neural pathways, those really, they affect every choice you make, whether you want it to or not. Right. Um, and where I'm from, when I grew up there in the 80s, you had to be scrappy. And so I was wired scrappy. <laughs> and I'll just always be scrappy. I'll, 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 I won't fail. 
Yeah, you won't fail. You won't beat me. Yeah, <laughs> refuse to fail. Yeah. And you like know, when it, we're when we're seasoning stuff, they're like, "Does it need this or that?" I'm like, "Maybe a little bit more." I said, "Like really? I'm like, do you want to win?" <laughs> <laughs> so you so you are so so you would say you're pretty highly competitive. Oh my god! You should see my four year old. He got it from me, and he just. Everything is a race. Everything is about being the fastest. I'll race you from here to there. Yeah. <laughs> over and over again. I love it. It's so fun. Did that, I mean, were you, did you play sports at all? Okay. Yeah, yeah. What did you? Baseball. Baseball. Oh, I love baseball so much. Yeah. Has the, has the competition and the, the drive, has that bit, bit you in the ass at times? Mm, every time. Every time. Yeah, every time. <laughs> and, but that goes, you know, what I'm, what I'm trying to figure out and what I've learned the hard way is if, if we could all, and I believe if we could all figure out what our individual circle of competence is, uh, then we'll all be okay. It's, it's basically this idea that, how, just like I was saying with the restaurant, it's like how far can I push and how much can I put out while still staying full? While still staying full. Yeah, because if you just keep putting out, you're just going to be drained and you're going to end up shooting heroin in your nostril. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Anybody's ever done that before? Yeah, I mean, I'd be curious how you, because I I mean, I I deal with that, that that stress with, that comes as a side effect of ambition, you know. And it was interesting. I felt like, um, and and correct me if if I'm wrong, but you sound like you're a lot less stressed now than maybe you were uh, when you were running that menu at that hotel or that restaurant at that hotel, what, what did you do to like become less stressed while, while not losing like your creative edge? Because sometimes I feel like if I mellow the fuck out and just don't care about anything, it's like, where, where's, am I still going to have a drive to create? Yeah. Um, I, my life changed. My drive changed not by choice. Um, the universe changed it for me by um, gifting me with myasthenia gravis, this autoimmune disease that is neuromuscular. And if I get stressed out or if I'm tired, my immune system gets angry and produces all these antibodies that affect the way my muscles communicate. And if I get like uh, the slightest bit upset, my vision goes double. Wow. Okay. Like that. Um, and so I've gone through all these crazy surgeries to try and fix it, but it turns out like it's, it's, it's my immune system and it's, and it's just my system. And so I changed my life completely. I stopped drinking alcohol. Um, I went to an amazing treatment center out in Arizona and spent 45 days digging through my childhood and, um, completely just became a different person. Um, I can go, I can look back at all these big shifts in my life and they were always and have always been, and hopefully they're not always going to be centered around like an injury or a traumatic event. When I broke my knee, I decided to stay here. Uh, my appendix ruptured. I decided to, to leave Husk and open Audrey. Um, okay. Yeah, I just fell and had a concussion recently, decided to turn <laughs> Continental into a, into a listening bar. Oh, that's what that's what uh, inspired that. Yeah, I just pay attention. I just patient and and just just be patient and pay pay attention. Um, 
it's all up there floating around and it'll rain every once in a while. You just got to be open to it. You got to be waiting for it because if you're just walking by, you'll never see it. Um, so for me, that's, for me, that's really looking at things that way, looking at life that way with just an open-minded curiosity. In, and it's almost like apathy a little bit. It's like, ah, who cares if it doesn't? That's just kind of where I am. Like, if it doesn't work, ah, who cares? It used to devastate me. Right. You know, but now I know that I, I did my part. Um, I, did my, I put forth my best effort. And if I admit defeat, let's just sit with defeat for a little bit and see what happens. <laughs> I think for a creative when you're younger, I mean, each time you fail, it feels like it's the end of the world. You know, or, or you almost like don't expect failure, you know, and I just think it's inevitable. That pain and suffering, um, are, we have to experience it, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, we have to sit in the pain and suffering. If we stop it by trying to forget about it, compartmentalize it or whatever, our whole nervous system, our whole brain it throws all the wiring off and we stay in that trauma. We never let our nervous system and our brain and our body know that we're safe and we're all good. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm, I'm actually, have you ever heard of like EMDR therapy? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm in the midst of doing that, trying to work through my own shit too. So, Somatic experiencing changed my life forever. Okay. Peter Levine um, invented it in the late 70s. Um, look it up. It's, it's that, but goes a bit deeper you do a lot a lot of um you 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 purposely re-traumatize yourself okay yeah and and then can you purposely re-traumatize yourself from a bad experience through almost like emdr sort of meditative sort of um trancey uh part of your brain um but what you do is they guide you through and and keep make sure that you feel safe while you're shaking and trembling and you know, your body's doing all these things that we try to stop immediately. We have to go through that cycle so that um, once the cycle's done, you see dogs do it. They, they, they'll do a whole body shake. That's a reset of the nervous system that tells your brain to store the neural pathway in wisdom and not fear. Wow. Okay, so when a dog, is, I mean, obviously not when they've had a bath or something, but June will do that sometimes where... We'll set off for a walk, and she'll take a few steps and shake her whole body out, and then we'll nervous system reset. That's incredible. That's Peter Levine. Check him okay, out. Okay, I'll check him and out. And there's all kinds of amazing therapists that do his work here in town. Okay, I'll check him out. I might hit you up about some recommendations mm-hmm. to that. Uh, I think now's a good time to take our cereal break, which you had an interesting combination of corn puffs and uh, sugar smacks. Why, where did that come from? Well, um, that's, that's where I want to go. Okay. Like, I, who says they get to have all the fun and make all the fun stuff with all the shitty corn? Yeah. You know? <laughs> so we're looking at getting into that, that world of, of it's, it's extrusion, and it's fascinating. So potentially doing, um, like when I was at Audrey, the, the uh, Jimmy Red Corn, you all did a cocktail with that which was exactly mind-blowing yeah so just squeezing that Mm -hmm. okay man (laughs) all right well i'm i'm excited just a quick little little snack yeah and um you got it sometimes you got to make your own blends yeah life is about 
saying, I like that, I don't like that, I prefer that, I don't prefer that, and then just, that's what you enjoy. Yeah. And that's just your stuff. So, you know, the the smacks are too sweet, and the corn pops aren't sweet enough, so you just balance them out. (laughs) I dig it. I got. I'm, I have to admit, I've actually need. I've had neither of these cereals ever, so this is the first <laughs> the time. The puff stuff is so cool. It's a hell of a combination. By it. Mm. A lot of cereal in my house. Yeah, have you put your kids onto this this combo? Their mother would never let them touch <laughs> anything with a grain of sugar on. Yeah, it's no not, way. Not a bad thing. It's it's good for now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. What cereal do they eat? Cheerios. Yeah. Won't touch anything else. Yeah. And and not any other bullshit Cheerio fucking uh, and oats not. and all that shit. No, they don't fuck with that. None of it. Wow. Mm-mm. Straight up. Give me the original stuff. Are, are your kids picky eaters? Mm. They're not just picky eaters. They're the pickiest eaters anyone's ever seen. And... They hate, they hate the physical act of eating. That seems like a cruel joke to I, play on a chef. Breakfast this morning was me putting each bite into my son's mouth and saying, you have to eat this. <laughs> Otherwise, you will starve. You yeah. have to eat this. Is that... <laughs> how, are, how are you coping with that? Well, it, the very first... You know, I got real worked up about having my first kid, and then preparing the kid's first food memory. That's huge. So it was squash season, and I happened to have a dozen varietals of heirloom squash lying around. And I made these uh, purees, like pass them through this horsehair tammy from Japan and like, season them. They, they were the silkiest, most intense, wonderful thing I've ever created. And I had these like 12 varietals of spoon pureed out. You know, for him to taste through so you can see what life is all about. We got a video of it. I hope nobody ever sees it. <laughs> <laughs> he took a bite and just started gagging immediately and refused to eat anything else. And then I just I realized, like, hmm, the universe is in control, I guess. <laughs> just sit back and see what happens. That's smart. My, uh, <laughs> my grandmother, she, she would make my little cousin take two ounce shots of milk because he hated milk. Hmm. Um, and she did it like seven or eight times and he'd throw up the Here's milk it. and, uh, oh, I like that. That's smart. A little bit of cold right there. Um, and finally we were just like, he, the kid doesn't like milk, you know, um, but <laughs> that's going to make her sound a lot crueler than she was. She's, she's pretty special, but it was, it was really bizarre. <laughs> So it's good you're not forcing. Oh, let me do it. It's incredible. <laughs> oh, hell yeah. It's incredible. <laughs> that is actually really good. Is this going to inspire? Hopefully this inspires something. Mm. Damn, that's good. What a. Do you remember? Oh, yeah, thanks, dude. Beautiful ball, by the way. Do you remember the first meal that made you fall in love with food? Um, 
first meal. Or maybe the first like just food where you're like, I want to be, I want to be a fucking chef after eating this. Mm -hmm. Um, For me, the path was eating food from the ground, experiencing it that way first. And that's all I ever ate was the highest quality heirloom stuff. Mm-hmm. So that's just kind of what my brain got wired to to know uh, and, and, and appreciate. Um, but what happened for me was, and I, and I can pinpoint a lot of moments with my grandmother pulling a potato plant out of the ground and the amazement of seeing those potatoes dangling there and then eating one, you know, from the ground and the second the oxygen hit it. You see, I, I, I can... Those moments, I have tons of those. But what really did it for me was this um, infomercial. We're talking in the 80s here, late 80s, early 90s, for a hand-hammered walk. And uh, I had to have one. And then once I got one, I couldn't stop cooking. And then I started watching TV to learn how to cook more. And I discovered great chefs. And I saw these people in these remote areas like I grew up in, like where I was, but creating like masterpieces, mm. art, you know, like I was like, whoa, I got to do that. <laughs> like, well, so we're, I know you have to get out of here here soon because you got to spin some vinyl. <laughs> um, That's so funny. But uh, one thing that we like to do, it's, it's kind of a fun game, but at the end of podcasts, a lot of times we'll have something called like rapid fire questions, but I kind of like to <clears> up <throat> Annie a little bit and do... Uh, where you strike a match, I ask the question, and you have about the time that the that the flame reaches your fingers to answer the question. Okay. So if you're in and you're not too scared of fire, which I can't imagine you are, I think that could be a fun way to to end out the Absolutely. interview. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, is there a is there some matches over by you or? Yeah, cool. So recently, um, all of my calluses came off, and okay. for the first time in my life. I know what it feels like to touch a hot pan. Like when I see other people screaming, that's hot. I'm like, that's not hot. And now you're like, it's hot. Okay. (laughs) It hurts. So this might, this, this game might be coming at the wrong time. How do you lose all the calluses on your hand? Long story. Long story. Okay. (laughs) All right. We'll save it for the next, uh, next show. All right. Uh, well, hold on, hold on. I'm going to ask the question. So you have a little more time. So once upon a time, you and Anthony Bourdain, uh, got absolutely hammered and went to Waffle House. And I want you to tell me what your Waffle House order is. Um, <laughs> I love the Waffle House, by the way. Still love it to this very day. Not extremely intoxicated. <laughs> <laughs> um, so my order has changed a little bit. And um, we'll see how my pain tolerance is. Yeah. So I think it's very important to understand like the timing of how things work there because it's important to me for it to be like a tasting menu so that it, it comes out coursed and paced so that there's just like a plate appears every once in a while. Mm-hmm. And that's the real thing. And you just got to make, yes, I oh, got to yeah. keep going. You got to keep going. <laughs> <clears throat> and, that's the, and that's the cool thing is like, you know, the menu used to be so huge. It's gotten a lot, a lot smaller. But I, I try to look at it the way I produce a tasting menu at the restaurant. So we'll start, 
with apps, but an app there can be a pork chop with Heinz 57. That can be first course. Yeah. <laughs> it can come in whatever order exactly. or, or, or start with a waffle or start with it a depends on uh, Yeah, it depends on how you want to end and how you want to feel when you, when you end. Um, but that story was, was awesome because um, right before we filmed that, I, I was doing an event with them, and I told him, I was like, man, I'm so excited for you to come to Charleston and film. What do you have in mind? He's like, uh, I thought you were writing the show. I was like, what? <laughs> I didn't get that from the email. <laughs> but I will. He's like, one thing we have to do is to go to the Waffle House. And I said, uh, you're going to hate it unless we're hammered. <laughs> and uh, we drank, I think, between the two of us, I think we were somewhere around... Uh, I bet we probably had eight to 12 Jägermeister shots, six oh to 10 beers, and then we drank a half bottle of whiskey and then went to the Waffle House. Oh my God. It was so fun. Yeah, that sounds, that sounds incredible. Well, you, hey, so you, didn't, you didn't give me your, like, what would be your dream order from Waffle House? So these days, I have to, um, I have to go back to that same sort of meal because I was ordering that way when I was 17, 18, Mm -hmm. like I was so fired up about the Waffle House called the Huddle House where I'm from that I was there almost every night before I went to culinary school. And, um, they had to hear about, I was obviously drinking a lot. Um, (laughs) that's why I was there at 1 AM. Um, they wrote me a poem that I carried around in my wallet forever about how they were going to miss me and all my crazy orders while I was away at culinary school learning how to be a chef. That's special. Um, and so the meal was like, I would always start with uh, the, the fastest, fastest thing, which is a salad from the fridge already pre-made. Get in there and get some food before you throw up. And then, <laughs> <laughs> um, then I'd love to throw the waffle in early on. Okay. And uh, it's very important to put the... Uh, hydrolyzed margarine in every square even coating every square (laughs) yeah yeah. a blanket Um, mm -hmm. and um uh, i love uh the patty melt so you split one of those just a couple bites yeah and then gotta have the pork chop they put some sort of voodoo seasoning on there i don't know what it it is but it just works amazing (laughs) coated in heinz 57 um, which is one of the most complex, incredible sauces of our generation. <laughs> Anthony Bourdain did not think so. Um, and then you had to end with the T-bone and, and hash brown, scattered, covered, smothered, chunked. I still don't even know what that means. Yeah, but it's good. <laughs> That's yeah. what I've been ordering since I was like 18. <laughs> you know, one day, um, if you're bored, you should just create a waffle house that is almost exactly in the same design but do all your your like your take on a waffle house someday that'd be sick someday that'd be cool um all right next question um you got to strike a match though although this time i'm gonna i wonder if i should have him i might hold have you hold it like kind of upside down oh (laughs) great yeah because that was way too easy that was like six matches all right, so uh, if you could have, uh, if you could make dinner for one person, dead or alive, who would it be, uh, and what would you make? I, I, I love this question. I think about it all the time, and if I could pick one person, it would be Obama. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> all, right. all right, tell me, what would you, what would you make him? 
Um, uh, my grandma's chicken dumplings and okay. cornbread and just the, an Appalachian feast because that food only exists there and it's so unique and most people have never had it. Um, but I, I like the way that guy thinks. Yeah. He's cool as hell too. <laughs> yeah. Um, third question. This one's, uh, this one's tough. You get your match ready. Oh. Uh, <laughs> all right. So as you mentioned previously, you're an avid seed collector You've got more than, I think it's like more than 200 green bean varieties. And I want you to name. <laughs> See how many I can name. I, I want you to name 12. Okay. Yeah. Go ahead and strike your match. 12. 12. It's easy. 20. <laughs> so um, we'll just... How about we just stick to greasy beans? All right, just greasy beans. Which is a varietal of bean. Okay. Then we get into these sub... <laughs> you think you can name 20 greasy no, beans? No, not before this burns the shit out of me. <laughs> all right, all right. See how many you can do, because I'm genuinely curious. Well, here's what's cool about it. You have, you have markers like color, like pink tip greasy, or yellow wax greasy, or um, then you get into families like birdies backyard greasy and the robertson holler redback greasy and it, it just keeps going and going and going because it's about like a place nice a place and people's families and a time period they they, they have just all these wonderful flavors and they are all different because they're being selected for what that individual person likes in a bean oh man yeah and yeah. so, and they date back like generations. I mean, and that's what happens. So there's like one that my grandmother has that I think my bean collection is close to 500 now. And um, my bean collection, <laughs> <laughs> what a nerd! What a fucking nerd! That um, is nerdy, but yeah, awesome. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've never seen uh, one like the one that my grandma grew. Um, which is now called the Audrey Morgan bean. That's beautiful. Yeah, and yeah. and that's just what's neat about it is, it's endless. But so are the stories. So are the the the, the lessons. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. Um, well, I wish we could go forever, but I will definitely have you back at some point. I want to send you off to uh, listen to vinyl. But with all our guests, we get them. Uh, a couple of a couple of gifts just to say thank you. So I'm gonna go grab those real quick. Okay. Sit tight. <clears throat> All right. Couple things for you here. One, uh, we know you're a huge fan of Big Al's, so this is a yes! T-shirt uh, for your kid. Although I didn't know he was such a picky eater. So maybe yeah. maybe Big Al's will, will save him. Yeah, maybe can it you, will. Can you can you read the quote on it really quick <laughs> on the back? Yep, food's so good, it'll make you slap your mama and kiss Big Al. <laughs> Big Al is amazing. Um, and then, man, I bet you have so many copies of these, but we know you're a like, huge fan of Foxfire, and I, I don't think you never have too many no, lying just, around. I give these away. These are perfect gifts for people. Yeah. I, if I see a box of these, I'll buy it. Okay. Always. Cool. This is, like, these, this is what I want to do with the rest of my life, is yeah. this kind of documentation. You should. You should. And then uh, this is this is actually was reprinted through Foxfire 
she is, you might even own this, but she's like a real famous weaver. Mm-mm. No, I don't know that. It's Amazing. like an interview. It, I just thought it was really pretty fascinating. This, yeah. She's like an artist and, and weaver. Uh, and then for the vinyl bar, this is my hands down favorite album of all time. Um, it's Frank Ocean's Blonde. Uh, it, it's also like gorgeous. So you have wow. like each vinyl is its own color. Yeah, but I just to start Thank the you. bar. I'll yeah. play it tonight. Yeah, Amazing. this was great, man. Thank you so Thank much you. for being yeah. here. Yeah, let's hang more. Um, yeah, I'll be easy to find. I'll be spinning records at the Continental until they yank me out of there. Awesome. I can't stop. <laughs> well, folks, that wraps up another thrilling edition of Dreamland. Cole Schaefer and his team of creative misfits work their darn tails off each week to make this show possible. How do you compare your group with the Beatles? I don't know. How do you compare with the Beatles? I, I don't compare at all, you know. There's no point. Well, let's get right down to brass tacks. Do you think you're better than they are? Oh, oh what? You know, it's, it's, it's not the same group, so we just do what we want and they do what they want. And there's no point in going on comparing us. So you can prefer us to them or them to us. Mm. It's just diplomatic, you see. Very diplomatic, and I don't want to live with...